it's a great joy to be here this morning at Faith Bible Church. I want to thank you, Pastor Ace, and your elders for inviting me back this year. Um, we live on the other side of town, but it is a, it is a great encouragement uh, for us to know that there's a church on this side of town that loves the word, loves the gospel, preaches it faithfully, and fellowships together. So we just uh, are so encouraged by all of you, and it's so great to be here today. I want to introduce my wonderful wife, Brody. Many of you know her, but we're so, I'm so thankful for Brody. Our son Tommy is up in your Sunday school class. I'm sure he's having a great time up there. So thank you for welcoming us here today to your church. The, uh, the title of the message today is, What is of First Importance to You? And the passage is, the passage comes from 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have your Bible, let's turn there and read just the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul writes, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the passage we're going to preach on today. And just a little context to start out. The city of Corinth is an ancient city in Greece, but it's still a current city in Greece today. It's located just 45 miles west of the capital of Greece, which is Athens. The Apostle Paul founded a church in Corinth during his second missionary journey as he journeyed to the various towns and cities on the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this whole region that he was traveling through and ministering to even where Paul came from in a town called Tarsus, just kind of northwest of Israel, was all under the control of the Roman Empire. During his third and final missionary journey, in about the year 55 AD, when Paul was in another town called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, 
which is basically about 350 miles east uh, from Corinth, he wrote his first of two letters to the church that is in Corinth, of which we just read a short portion this morning. Now, Corinth at that time was a, a cosmopolitan city. It is not today, but it was, it was back then. It was situated on an isthmus. Who from your geography class in seventh grade remembers what an isthmus is? An isthmus is a, quote, narrow strip of land with sea on either side forming a bridge between two larger areas of land. Okay, so that totally confused you. Just picture an hourglass. You have kind of the bulb at the top and the bulb at the bottom. Those are the bodies of land. And then you have the little strip where the sand goes through in the middle. That's the isthmus. And then on the sides, there'll be, there'll be sea. Now, why that's worth noting is that everything and everyone passed through Corinth at that particular time. Those traveling on land from north to south would go through the isthmus of Corinth. Those traveling from sea, from east to west, or vice versa, would travel through isthmus. In fact, they would take their, their vessel and they would transport it on land across the isthmus on rollers or skids to, have, to avoid having to travel 250 miles around the southern coast of Greece, which was quite treacherous for those in boats. Now, because Corinth was this, this bustling crossroads with all manner of humanity passing through it, it had a reputation as Sin City, long before Las Vegas. So much so did it have this reputation that the word Corinthianize was actually used to describe the reputation of the city and the rampant sexual immorality and drunkenness that the city was so well known for. But man-made religion never restrains sexual sin. No matter how religious you are, it doesn't restrain the immorality in our hearts. So it wasn't ironic that Corinth was a religious city as well. It had a temple to Aphrodite, who was the the goddess of beauty, fertility, and quote-unquote sexual love. Translate, transition love for lust. It stood above stood 2,000 feet above the city, from which each night prostitutes would descend down into the city to offer their, quote-unquote, services. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth because he was gravely concerned about the church that he had founded being influenced by the ungodly culture that was all around it. And so as you go chapter by chapter through this letter, as you work towards chapter 15, he almost does this like chapter by chapter takedown and rebuke and reproof for what this church has become. So in chapter 3 of the letter, he reproves them for having jealousy and strife and unnecessary division. In chapter 4, he actually mocks them for their spiritual pride when in fact they're very immature and and worldly. In chapter 5, Paul criticizes them for doing nothing about a church member who was involved in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. This is not a good picture here in this church. In chapter 6, Paul denounces them that they are taking their offenses with each other to secular courts instead of resolving them 
within the church. He also tells them in chapter 6 not to be desensitized by this very ungodly, unrighteous culture in which they're living. You've heard this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this in verse 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That could be describing our culture today. In chapter 7, Paul spends 40 verses on basic things the Corinthians should have known about marriage, singleness, and divorce. In chapters 8 and 9, Paul admonishes them for excusing their or exercising their Christian liberty without concern for how their actions would impact a fellow Christian with a weaker conscience. In chapter 10, Paul warns the Corinthians to not be like the Israelites in the Exodus who craved what is evil and grumbled and were idolaters and were immoral. In chapter 11, Paul reminds them to hold to the gender distinctions. Hmm, interesting. In roles that God established. Then he tells them to, then he takes them to task for partaking in communion as if it's some kind of drunken dinner party. In chapters 12 through 14, Paul teaches them about spiritual gifts. They were desiring the more showy, dramatic gifts, misusing them and not exercising love. In short, the church in Corinth was fleshly, it was immature, and it was proud. They were being influenced by the unrighteous culture around them. Instead of being salt and light in that culture, they were being a shame to the name of Christ. And this is why Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church is so relevant to Christians and the evangelical church in our country today. Because the culture around us today is just as wicked, if not more so, than in Corinth. And the church today has been gravely influenced by the culture around us. And that really is the, the first point of the message today, is that Christians in America need to examine ourselves, and we need to repent and revive. Any honest comparison between God's will and America's way can only lead to one conclusion. And that conclusion is this, that our nation has largely rejected God. Consider the God-designed family with a married father and mother raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's been replaced by single parents, unwed parents, parents of the same sex, children being raised to question and transition their gender, the family, which is God's fundamental building block for a stable and good society, is truly on life support in our country. Education. The purpose of education is to grow in knowledge that aligns with God's truth. So whether it's science or biology or speech or math or economics or morality, justice, you name the subject, 
We're meant to grow in knowledge that aligns with the truth of God. Instead, our educational system literally ignores the existence of God and pushes a divisive, vengeful obsession with race, sexuality, and gender called diversity, equity, inclusion. Or if you reverse that that acronym, not D-E-I, it's D-I-E, because that's what it does. Over 60 million human beings made in the image of God have been killed since the 1970s in the name of health care. Over 100,000 drug overdose deaths occurred in 2021. 46,000 suicides and 25,000 homicides, murders. Not too long ago, there was a time in America, I'm sure some of the older generation here will remember this. Kids used to bring their guns to school to go hunting or shooting afterwards. Now kids bring their guns to school to shoot and murder other students. Something has gone really terribly wrong in our culture today. God's design for sexual intimacy is for a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. That is a very rare standard today, even within the evangelical church. The heterosexual revolution of the 1960s has, the word they like to use is progressed, to the promotion and affirmation of homosexuality and transgenderism across all sectors of our society. Every institution has been given over to this, whether it's politics, media, corporate America, education, entertainment, you name it. As a matter of fact, we have a full month that demands that we have pride over it. Pornography, which is just a long word for the sin of lust and adultery with someone not your spouse, is a $15 billion industry in America. That's more lucrative than Hollywood and Netflix and other online entertainment companies. I think if the Corinthians back then visited America today, I think they'd have a word for us, Americanize. The only, one and only explanation for what is taking place in this country today is the rejection of God and his word. Everything boils down to that. We reject God, we reject the truth of his word. And Paul makes that point very clear in the first chapter of his letter to the Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 18. He starts off this letter early on by saying the, the word of the cross, or scripture, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God and the gospel are foolish to most in our nation now, very tragically. And so it's not surprising that every day what is evil is called good, and what is good is called evil. And barring a supernatural revival of people turning to Christ in our country, it's only going to get worse, as Pastor Ace referenced Romans 1 today. Just read that chapter sometime, see where things are going. 
But in the midst of that, what ought not happen is that the evangelical church and professing Christians start thinking and living like the culture around us, as what was taking place in Corinth. And yet, with a few exceptions, the church actually just trails the culture by just a couple steps. We had the Christian researcher George Barna on the radio program, The Christian Rovia, recently. He released a study, and I'll just highlight just two points of the study, finding that only 2% of professed Christian parents have a biblical worldview. Just one half, or 50%, of self-described Christian parents accept the Bible as the true and trustworthy words of God. You see, the evangelical church today has this idea that it must become like the world in order to win the world. What it's really saying is that it doesn't have confidence in God and His Word. It, it believes that God isn't able to build His church without our, our flawed human reasoning. And this explains why the evangelical church today is engaged in the same type of culture war issues we see in broader society. For example, with regards to race, sexuality, and gender. This, this new religion in our country of wokeness is, has infected everything, all the institutions. But it's also infected the church as well. Seminaries, Christian colleges and schools, ministries, and Christian leaders. Instead of standing firm against what is antithetical to biblical Christianity, the evangelical church and these leaders are always trying to kind of find this third way, this synthesis of a new way to merge the two belief systems. So this is why the Southern Baptist Convention, I'm sure many of you have heard this, passed a resolution a couple years ago that critical race theory should be used as an analytical tool. This is why evangelicals today consider gay Christianity to be actually consistent with Scripture, trying to find a third way there. This is why the most influential pastor in America, Rick Warren, just named a a married couple and three elders at his church in Southern California. To be very clear, engaging in ethnic partiality, which is what critical race theory is, to engage in lust or sex outside of one man one-woman marriage, and redefining the roles that God established for the church, that is not reform. That is rebellion. So if Paul wrote a, a letter to the evangelical church today in America, I'm guessing it would be even harsher than that chapter-by-chapter chapter takedown of what he wrote to the Corinthians. But after 14 chapters of reproof, what would Paul say to exhort us to encourage us so that we are not left totally dispirited and not left totally hopeless. Well, we really don't have to guess what he would say because he actually wrote what he would say to us in chapter 15, the last two chapters of the book of Corinthians. He wrote exactly what he would say, telling them exactly what to do. And notably, he didn't offer kind of this baseless optimism like, well, just hang in there. The pendulum's going to swing the other way. Corinth's best days are ahead of her. He didn't say that. He, he didn't charge them to reform the culture of Corinth. He didn't tell them to push back against the heathens 
to get laws passed against prostitution. He didn't tell them to work for more Christian-friendly leaders in office. We just get the right civil leaders. He didn't tell them to you know, work like crazy to get prayer and Bible reading back in the schools or to be more seeker-sensitive in your church. You had to be more sensitive to the culture around you. Be more welcoming. No, Paul told them to focus on one thing and one thing alone. What he called the most important thing, that which would ground them, sanctify them, and give them hope in the present, but also going forward in the future. So we come to point two. Here's what he told them. In a corrupt culture, in a compromised church, he told them to focus on Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible still open, let's go back to the first couple verses we read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He starts out this chapter after this chapter-by-chapter chapter takedown by saying, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In these first two verses, Paul reminds them of the gospel. You know what the gospel means. It means what? Good news. It's good news that God has provided a way to have victory to overcome the bad news. What's the bad news? The bad news is what's going on inside of us, that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And not only that, but the wages of that sin is death, physical death and eternal separation from God. That's terrible news. Romans 3.23 and 6.23. Now, Paul had already preached this good news to the Corinthian church, that sinners can be forgiven by God, they can be made right or reconciled to him, they can be granted eternal life with him in heaven. So his point is not that the gospel is some kind of one-time message that you sort of believe at one time and you kind of move on from there. It must be on our minds daily because the gospel is so simple yet so profound. Now notice the progression of the, fa- the, the phrases in this, these first couple of verses. The gospel which I preach to you. No doubt you've heard the saying, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary, right? Everyone heard that? It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Well, apparently he didn't say that. But either way, it's not true. Paul says right here, the gospel must be preached. It must be spoken. It must be proclaimed. More so than even being shared, it must be proclaimed. Next phrase, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. The gospel is not physically received like some gift we get at Christmas. It is a gift, but not like that. But it's mentally and volitionally and spiritually received by faith. And we also can't earn this gospel. We can't receive this gospel through earning it through our religious works. It must be received by faith. Next phrase, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. The gospel is a message that when preached and received by faith causes us to be able to stand firm in this world 
also saving us from God's judgment. And finally, the last phrase there, if you hold fast the gospel or the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. If you hold fast. Well, this is scary. Apparently, one can profess to believe the gospel, but not possess genuine salvation. In other words, we can intellectually assent to Jesus, that he existed, he was a great teacher, maybe even we even believe he was the son of God. The demons believe that and shudder. But that doesn't save us. It's per- perseverance in believing this gospel that is one of the strong evidences of true salvation. So we go from the first two verses to then the next two in verses 3 and 4. So now he's going to explain what the gospel actually is. Not how it's preached, but what it actually is in verses 3 and 4. Or more specifically, not what the gospel actually is, who the gospel is about. Who this good news is about. Verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I mean, to assert something is of first importance, that's really making a major claim, isn't it? This is the most important thing. Like, more important than your marriage? More important than your your children who you love so much? More important than your, your home? More important than your career that you've worked so hard at? More important that you can retire with financial security? More important than world events? That is exactly what Paul is asserting. The gospel is of first importance. Christ is of first importance. He's saying that the most important thing in life is this, that sinful men and women can be forgiven of their sin and reconciled to the holy God through faith in the sinless life, the substitutionary death, and the supernatural resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying is of first importance. And notice how Paul doesn't use Jesus' human name here, that Christ died for our sins. He uses his title. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's his title. It's the Messiah. It means the anointed one. Because when Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he means it wasn't just any man who died for the sins of mankind, but the Christ, the anointed one, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who died for your sins according to the scriptures. This is the, the bottom line of the bottom line of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, in his crucifixion on on the cross, took our sin, satisfying God's wrath and justice over our sin. But notice how he says this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This idea of Christ dying for our sins, this idea of substitution or penal substitutionary atonement, the core of the gospel, this language of substitution is all over scripture. I'm sure some of your favorite Passage in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. If you can want to just turn there for a second, you'll just be amazed. Literally every single phrase 
in that chapter, not the whole chapter, but almost the whole chapter, has this language of substitution in it. Isaiah 53, I'm just going to read verses 4 through 6, and just notice the idea of substitution here. Verse 4, Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs, he, referring to Christ, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Substitution. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Substitution. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Substitution. Verse 6, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Here it is. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Substitution. Now there's a second aspect of the gospel beyond this substitution that Paul emphasizes. Not only did Christ die for our sins according to the scriptures, here's the second part, but that he was buried and that and he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This also is of first importance. Not just Christ's death on the cross, but his his burial and resurrection. As a matter of fact, Paul is going to spend the rest of chapter 15 telling us why Christ's resurrection is of first importance. So if you flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's go on from where we, we read today in verses 1 through 11. Let's go over to chat, into uh, verse number 12, where Paul says this, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses, liars of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, believing in Christ, have perished, not lived for eternity. Verse 19, if we have hoped or had faith in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul was so certain of Christ's resurrection. After all, he had seen the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, right? That he based the whole of the Christian faith on it. In other words, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is a complete fraud and we are all wasting our time here this morning at church. This is what makes the Christian faith unique. Christ died for our sins and he is still alive today. He rose from the dead. Muhammad didn't die for anyone's sins, and he's still dead. Buddha didn't die for anyone's sins, and he's still dead. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, he doesn't just emphasize this point, by the way, of Christ's resurrection. 
he also gives evidence for it. Look there in verse 5. Christ appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, some are still alive, but some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul writes. The eyewitness testimonies of the risen Christ would stand up in any court of law. Many a court case is decided on circumstantial evidence with no witnesses. Over 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses, saw the risen Christ at one time. So the question we all must answer with this kind of testimony and evidence is, do you believe in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are you staking your life and eternity on these claims? If so, do your thoughts and your words and your actions demonstrate that Jesus Christ is of first importance in your life? Because this is why Paul says this, for Christ's death and resurrection to be of first importance, that he saves those who are unbelievers. He saves them from hell. He sanctifies those who have believed in Christ and his death and resurrection. And once you have, he gives a great purpose and hope, both for this life and the future. So the antidote, you can use that word in, in the age of COVID, if you will, to living in a corrupt culture and a compromised church is to make Christ of first importance in your life. And we do that by repenting of our sin and placing our faith for forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ and his work, his death, his resurrection on the cross. And we follow him as Lord. If you are here today and have never done that, put your faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. I couldn't urge you more strongly to do so. That is of first importance. That is the most important thing you must do in your life. And if you refuse to do it, you will be judged for rejecting Jesus Christ. God promises. Romans 10 says this, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. You are hearing the word, the message of the, the cross today and in this church as your pastor preaches every week that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We need to be saved from God, from God's wrath over our sin, by God's grace, for God's glory. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And this is great verse in verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Christ will not be disappointed. That's an understatement. Once you believe to make Christ of first importance, we need to prioritize reading his word and hearing it preached, but not just hearing it preached by anyone. There's lots of blogs and lots of preachers and lots of podcasts out there. We need to hear from preachers who accurately handle the word of truth. And then we need to fellowship with others in a local body like this who love Christ. 
We need to pray for and take opportunities whenever we get them to testify about Christ's death and resurrection. We need to rest in the fact that we will be resurrected to heaven just like Christ in bed. That is our, our great hope. One final point. Paul doesn't just tell them, the Corinthian church, what to focus on, to think about, to believe in, what to set their hope on, Christ's death, death and resurrection. He leaves them with a, a charge to keep. If you skip ahead through all the passages on resurrection in chapter 15 to the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Here's what he says. He gives them these, kind of these marching orders. Therefore, like, okay, I've said all this. Here's now what you're going to do. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Just look at the words there for a second. Steadfast. In the Greek, this term means firm, or I like this one, moral fixity. Moral fixity. Society always says, aren't you going to change with the times? Aren't you going to be kind of not on the wrong side of history? The answer is no. Christians need to be fixed on God's unchanging, perfect will and ways. To whatever perversion the culture dives, and whatever rationalized compromise the evangelical church descends, Christians need to look at God's word and quote Romans 3. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Look at the next word, immovable. It means just that. Don't be moved. Don't be persuaded or deceived by truthful-sounding lies. Because lies always have a portion of truth in it, right? Except if it's the Inflation Reduction Act or something like that. There's no truth in that, but anyway. Usually they have a bit of truth in it. Accurately handle the word of truth and then be immovable. Don't move from it. And then finally, he says this phrase, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Abounding means to, to have an abundance, to excel in the work of the Lord. The pursuit of becoming more like Christ, sanctification, the proclamation of Christ in the church and outside the church, discipling others in Christ, doing good works with the gospel, that's all the work of the Lord, abounding in the work of the Lord. And so no matter where the world goes, no matter how much the church compromises, no matter the trials or the circumstances you face in life, your toil will not be in vain in the Lord. If you follow Paul's charge there in the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. We're living, I think, in a transformative time in history. No one knows the exact what and when of the future, though. But it sure seems like we're on some sort of fast track to the book of Revelation. So this globalism, global governance, the authoritarian rule, seems like we're heading towards Revelation. No one knows the future of the evangelical church either. Visible Christianity, whether churches or seminaries or denominations or parachurch ministries, they come and go. And yet Christ continues to build his church, his invisible 
body of believers, even in the midst of a contrary culture. Our little lives, by the way, they also quickly come and go. James writes, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We get easily sidelined by sin. We get easily distracted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That which is of first importance, what we talked about today, Christ, sometimes doesn't make our top five in our priority list. What do I think the most about in life? What do I talk about the most in life? What do I spend my money on in life? What makes me happy? What brings me satisfaction at the deepest level? If not Christ, that's a reminder. We need to repent. We need to return. We are not powerless to make and keep priorities in life. God gives the believer upon the point of regeneration, conversion, the Holy Spirit, his very Holy Spirit, to indwell us, to empower, to empower our thinking and our living. So we need to make the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ the top priority of our life in our fallen world. A hymn writer named Helen Lamel, she captures this, this idea so well in, in her hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Many of you probably heard this hymn. It was my grandmother's favorite hymn. She was the first believer in our family when I, back in 1955. She had grown up in a Catholic home and married my grandfather, and he didn't want her to go to church anymore. And she stopped being a Catholic, but she had a deep need inside of herself. And she started to listen to a, uh, a Christian radio, of all things. And she heard a man preaching the gospel about Jesus Christ on Christian radio and got on her hands and knees in her kitchen in 1955 and as the first person in our family to come to saving faith in Christ. And this was her favorite hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Christ needs to be of first importance in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for who you are, the holy creator, sovereign God who sustains this universe, who determines the times and the future, and we can totally trust you for that. We know from the past how you brought things to pass, the prophecies of the Old Testament perfectly fulfilled, the coming of Christ, his sinless life, his willingness to die on the cross for our sins, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven where he lives now today, all prophesied, all come true, and what you've further written in your scripture will come true as well. So we need to hold fast to him. We need to make him of first importance in our life. Help us to do that, Lord, 
there is one here today who has never put their trust, their faith in you, Father, and the provision for sin that you have provided through your Son, I just pray that that person will come and speak to one of the elders of this church about what must they do to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there are others here today that Christ is not of first importance in their life, pray that your word would do its work in their hearts to convict them, lead them to repentance and revival and to make the priority of putting you and your son and your word as of first importance in their life. We thank you for this church, Lord. We thank you for how you blessed this church. We thank you for this pastor who works hard to faithfully preach your word week after week. We trust that that word would have an impact, your word would have an impact as it reaches into the hearts and minds of those who are here. We thank you for this time together now. We pray all this in the name of your mighty son, Jesus Christ. Amen.